Okay, I want to start this message differently than I started it in the early service. Um, do you remember back in the day, some of you remember back in the day when there were altar calls, and many churches still have those, and those are great. Um, do you remember there was, sometimes they do this thing where they say, every head bowed, every eye closed. I want you to put your hand up if God's speaking to you, you know? Sometimes I felt like I was tricked on that, because he'd say, that's all I want, that's all I want, and then he'd say, now, if you put your hand up, come on up, and I'm like, what just happened there? I wanted to stay where I was. I will never do that to you, at least not intentionally, I'll never do that to you. But I do want, I do want you to just humor me for a moment, okay? With no one looking around, I'd like you to bow your head, okay, and close your eyes, all right? All right, everybody's doing that? If I see your eyes, I'm going to call you out. Just kidding. All right, I'm not going to ask you to hold your hand up. I'm going to ask you to nod your head like three times, if this is true. If in the past year or month or a couple years, whatever period of time it is, you have kind of felt like evil is winning. Okay, now real God, real life, real people, we don't lie here, okay? Nod your head if you feel that. I see a lot of heads nodding. Mine is nodding, okay? I'm nodding with you. Okay, keeping your head bowed, your eyes closed. If in the past week, month, year or two, you have kind of wondered if God really is there for you, is God really there for you? If that thought has crossed your mind, just nod, okay? Yep, I see that, I see that hand. <laughs> I see that nodding, right? Okay. All right, and here's the third one. If in the past week or month or year or two, you have kind of wondered if it's going to be okay, is it really going to end all right? Then let's see. That, go ahead and nod again, okay? All right, I see people nodding. Good. Okay, keep your head bowed and your eyes closed because I want to pray for you. So God, as we are here today, before you, willingly acknowledging questions that we've had and things that are on our mind, I would pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak through these lips of clay that belong to me, and that you would help answer those questions of the heart, those soul questions, through this story of Noah. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. If you nodded your head, I believe this message is for you. I believe it's for you. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 11. We're going to cover a lot of miles. And if you have the Bible app, it will be your friend because we're going to read a lot of stuff from that passage or from that that particular uh, application. Now, if you have a paper app, (laughs) whoops, if you have a paper Bible, don't worry, I'm going to help you. I'm going to say, okay, now move to here, move to here, move to here. We'll talk about that in a moment. When I was learning to preach, one of the guys that was in the class with me was preaching a sermon on Noah and the ark. And as I listened to his sermon, you know, as a, when you're in that kind of class, you're kind of evaluating that you actually fill out an evaluation form on every sermon that you hear in that class. And I, I don't know if I wrote this down or not, but I remember what I thought. When he got done preaching a sermon on the, of, of the ark of Noah, I thought, that was a sermon on mathematics. Because it was. That's basically what he did. He talked about, you know, how did he get all those animals in there? And what did he feed all those animals with? And how did they manage to stay in there for a whole year? Because that's how long they were in there, a little longer than a year. And on top of that, where did that water come from? And where did that water go? And those were the questions that he addressed when he preached that message. And I had nothing but admiration for him. I mean, that really impressed me that he did all that work and spent all that time doing that. I am not going to do that today. <laughs> I'm not going to do it for a couple number of reasons. First, 
for a couple of reasons, I should say. First, while I can see how those answers might be important, if you want those answers, go to Answers in Genesis. That's a ministry that spends a lot of time with those kinds of questions. You can find those. So that's the first reason I'm not doing that. The second reason I'm not going to do the math is because I feel like you can have all the mathematical answers on that and still miss the point of the story. You can kind of miss. What's the point of this story anyway? This story of Noah and the ark is not just inside of Christendom. In fact, sociologists, when they look around the globe, they see stories of global flood all over the planet. There just comes up in all kinds of different places. Probably the most well-known one, after the story of Noah and the ark, comes from a piece of literature uh, that's thousands of years old called the Gilgamesh Epic. I want to know, how many of you have ever heard of the Gilgamesh Epic? Put your hand up. Okay, good, good, good. How many of you have ever read the Gilgamesh Epic? Put your hand up. Yeah, you and me, baby. We're the nerds, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So the Gilgamesh epic, and I read it again last last week, just the part about the uh, the flood, it has a story of the flood. The gods were mad, and one of the gods told this guy, whose name I can't pronounce because it's like seven syllables long, hey, the gods are mad, they're going to flood the earth, you ought to get in, and, and he does it and everything. And it's got so many elements in there that are similar, but but, but honestly... <laughs> One of the things that is missing is the entire point that you find in the book, in the story of Noah. That aspect that I'm going to talk to you about today isn't in there. That aspect that is missing is the aspect of covenant. And I would say to you that the story of Noah and the ark in its biblical form has actually endured, not just because it's in the Bible. There are a lot of stories in the Bible that aren't that popular, And not just because there's animals in it, not just because it explains two by two and all that sort of thing, but rather one of the reasons it has endured in society is because of the point that God makes a covenant with Noah. Now, we don't have time to read the entire story. It's a lot of verses in the Bible. So we're going to skip over some parts. And that makes my heart really sad because the story is filled with so many good details and so many meaningful lessons. But what I want to do is discuss this one detail, and that is the point of this unique story, God covenants with Noah. So I'd ask you to follow along. We're going to begin at Genesis 6, verse 11, and then I'll tell you where we're going to skip to. The Bible app will really be your friend here. Ready? 611. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. Okay, now let's skip down to verse 17. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth and destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Okay, skip to verse 22, one sentence. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And now chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous 
in this generation. Skip to verse 4. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Skip down to verse 17. For 40 days, I'm sorry, for 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. Skip down to verse 23. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Now, chapter 8 picks up after Noah has been in the ark for about a year. He actually spends just over a year in the ark. And when chapter 8 picks up, he's waiting in the ark for the water to abate. Verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Move to verse 14. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. Go to verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to God, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Okay, you tired of jumping around like this? We're going to go to chapter 9. We're going to read straight through until we get to the end of what I want to present to you today. Chapter 9, verse 1. Here is where God blesses Noah's family and makes a covenant with them, a covenant more binding than a contract. Verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and on the birds of the sky and every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals and all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my bow, or I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth, and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you 
and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Okay. So this is the first time in scripture that the word covenant has appeared. It becomes a thematic word in scripture. All the way through scripture, you read covenant, covenant, covenant. It's the first time you see the actual Hebrew word for covenant, but God has already made a covenant with man. God made a covenant with Adam when he placed him in the garden. You don't have to turn here, but it's in chapter one of Adam. Of Adam. <laughs> That's cute. It's in chapter one of Genesis. It's verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. God blessed them and said to them, here it comes, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit in the seed of it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And then when you move ahead, you see a stipulation in the covenant in Genesis 2, where he says in 16, and the Lord God commanded man, you're free to eat of any tree in the garden, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know that story. It's part of that covenant. And that's really the first time in human history that God enters into a covenant. It's with Adam. It's called the Adamic covenant. And now here we have, nine chapters later in Genesis, God again using this language. I want to suggest to you, when you think of the story of Noah and the ark, I want to suggest to you that the covenant is a focal point of the story. I would say the covenant is the focal point of the story. Now, you know the meaning of covenant. If you're thinking, what is a covenant today? It's not a contract. You know, a contract has stipulations with ins and outs and escape clauses and things like that. A covenant is simply a promise, an unchangeable promise. It's like marriage. It's a forever promise that, that speaks of a relationship. I'm going to quote a theologian named Wayne Grudem two times this morning. I'm going to quote him now and then later in my message. Wayne Grudem says that a divine covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of the relationship. God covenants with his people. And you and I celebrate a covenant that God made all the time. We do it together the first Sunday of every month. And we read in the scripture, the words in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, where it says, in the same way after he took the cup, Afterward, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That's the eternal covenant. That's the everlasting covenant. That's the covenant of grace. Covenants, I would say to you, are not just important as we relate to God. I would say they are essential. In fact, I kind of think that one might make the case that the only way God relates to us is through covenant. God is always intentional. He never does anything without purpose. And he has some really good reasons that he gives this covenant to Noah. Have you ever thought about how strangely we kind of regard the story of Noah and the ark? Sometimes it seems as though if someone was looking into our lives from the outside, they would say, 
Oh, that story of Noah and the ark, that must just be a delightful children's story. Is it? (laughs) Or someone looking on might say that it appears as though we feel Noah and the ark is a great decorative theme for a party. You can get placemats and napkins with animals on them. And let's put in the center of the table, I got a cookie jar that's in the shape of an ark. Let's fill that with cookies. Is that what it is? I want you to know one of your elders just nodded because he really likes cookies. And who hasn't seen the Noah and the Ark playset? I mean, my mother-in-law, when our children were small, for Christmas built them wooden Noah and the Arks with pairs of animals. It's just a beautiful piece of art and toy. We all had that. It's a beautiful story, right? Right? <laughs> I want you to think for a minute. Think about the story of Noah and the Ark from Noah's perspective. When he entered the Ark, if he happened to look back over his shoulder, What did he see? And when he exits the ark, when he looks ahead of him, what did the absence of the human voice coming from the earth sound like to his ears? You know, as I was thinking through his experience, I thought, I'll bet that Noah was just a little broken. Throughout this incident, a little broken. I have enjoyed the comedic recording of Noah and the Ark. You know the one? Noah, what is this thing for anyway? I can't tell you. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, what, you want to get it out of my driveway? Can you give me a hint, Noah? You want a hint? Yeah, give me a hint. How long can you tread water? Ha, 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 ha. I've enjoyed that. Comedy, that's comedy. But that's not Noah. That's not what was happening at all. I don't think that Noah whistled while he worked. I don't think he had a song on his heart. In fact, sometimes when I think of what it must have been like for him, I wonder if he had a little bit of the mindset that the good men who worked on the Green Mile would have had as they were preparing men, women, for execution. Hmm. There are people who kind of gloat over the misfortune of others. And while a good person can be pleased when justice is served, good people are not prone to gloating. It's not Christ-like. It's ugly. God doesn't gloat. And as soon as I say that, there's probably a couple of people think, well, I don't know. The Bible says that he laughs at the wicked, and indeed, the scripture does say that. It says that in Psalm 37 and Psalm 59, but it's not a nanny, nanny, poo, poo kind of a laugh. When God is laughing at the wicked, he is not laughing at the outcome, the judgment that comes upon them. He's laughing because how in the world can you think you can take me on? That's so stupid, so silly. That's his kind of laughter, that the wicked are indeed powerless before God, but he doesn't gloat after the fact. In fact, the scripture says in Ezekiel chapter 33, 11, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. So if Noah was a good man, and the Bible says that he was, then he had to be brokenhearted at what was going down. Noah must have been a little bit broken. And I think that Noah must have been a little bit overwhelmed. I mean, if you experienced any quarantine at all during these past uh, few months, you know how bored you can become. 
two-week quarantine. Early on, that's what they were making everyone do who had been exposed. We went out of the state, quarantine, quarantine. I'll tell you what, I know Laurel never got tired of me being around, but I got so tired of her being around. (laughs) And you know, we have television, we have internet, we have streaming, we have all kinds of entertainment, we have music, we have pianos, we have guitars, we have all kinds of things. And yet, in two weeks, it just kind of made us stir crazy. Did it make you that way? Did it make you that way? Well, let's multiply that. How many of those are in a year? That would be 26. Yeah. Is my math right? I'm pretty sure it is. 26 times 2. Better be fit. Yeah. Yeah. And they were in there over a year. And they didn't have the internet. And they didn't have streaming. They didn't even have fresh air. I don't know what it smelled like, man, but wow. (laughs) And I am guessing they just dreamed about the day when they could get out of that ark. Ah, to touch the green, green grass of home. But it wasn't the green, green grass of home. What did the earth look like after being submerged for that long? Noah. Scripture tells us he was a man of the soil, so he probably had gardens and vineyards. He's pretty successful, evidently. He built that ark, right? But there was no vineyard waiting for him. There was no garden there. He's got his work cut out for him. He must have felt overwhelmed. And frankly, had I been Noah, I would have emerged from that ark just a little bit fearful. Because apart from Adam and Eve, no one in history has ever seen the wrath of God as clearly as did Noah. I mean, he saw it all right there. People use this figure of speech. I use it from time to time. Man, (laughs) when you get on that 700 horsepower Dodge and you put that pedal down to the floor, that'll put the fear of God in you. That's a great figure of speech, isn't it? (laughs) That may or may not be true, but I think this is true. When you get in that ark, you hang out for about 370 days, and then you come out and see every living thing has been wiped out, that'll put the fear of God in you. It had to. I don't care who you are. I cannot imagine that Noah was not a little bit fearful. I'm kind of beginning to, as I think through this, a little broken, a little overwhelmed, and a little fearful, I'm kind of beginning to understand why God spoke to Noah in this covenant. Think about what God says in this covenant to Noah, the Noahic covenant that he speaks. Basically, he says what I have said to you dozens and dozens of times through the past several years. He says to Noah that evil does not have the last word. God has the last word. I ask you early, do you ever feel like evil is winning? That is where the most head nods occurred when I asked that question. Everyone feels that way from time to time. And it tempts us to despair. (laughs) But understand this. Evil does not win. God wins because God is good. Good wins because God is good. I don't pretend to understand the depth of the depravity existence in the days of Noah. But the Bible tells me that it was bad enough that God poured forth his wrath from the clouds in the sky and from the fountains of the deep because evil was running with its pedal all the way to the floor and God brought it to a stop now. Evil doesn't win. 
God wins. He brought evil to an end right there. And then God seems to set back everything back to where it had been generations earlier. All the way back to Adam, it would seem. This covenant with Noah, this Noahic covenant, parallels with the Adamic covenant, the covenant with Adam in several ways. We read it twice in the story in chapter 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And then six verses later it says, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase in it. Those words aren't new. I read them to you when we went back to Genesis 1. There they were. The covenant with, with Noah that God is, that God is creating is one to say, life is going to go on. It's going to go on. God's plan is still in effect. Hmm, evil cannot stop the divine purpose. Knowing that evil doesn't have the last word, that had to be important for Noah to understand. And it's important for you. It's important for me. Additionally, this covenant that God made with Noah reminded Noah that God values humankind. I want you to imagine something with me, if you would. I want you to imagine that as a child, you had an older brother or older sister that was always getting in trouble. For some of us, that's not hard to imagine. (laughs) Finally, though, when you were about 10 years old and he was about 13, finally, your parents had had all they could handle. And they sent him off to military school or to that academy or to that home or to that behavioral facility. Whatever it is, he's gone and you may never see him again. He was so bad that he's gone. How would that affect you? I mean, what would that do to your own sense of security and safety and well-being? How would such a extreme disciplinary or punitive action shape your parents, your view of your parents and who they were in your life. Hmm. You know, the flood seems pretty extreme and I'm only reading it. Just imagine if I had been there, if you had been there, if we had been there and experienced it or seen it firsthand. If I had seen what Noah must have seen. And if I had felt the emptiness of the earth upon disembarking, wow, I think I'd be tempted to wonder, where does God stand with humankind? Sure, God spared Noah and his family, good. And yeah, he spared those animals, that's cool. But there's a lot he didn't spare. A lot more he didn't spare. And so in this covenant, God graciously reminds Noah that he and his family still have a place in this world, that their value has not diminished. Their value hasn't changed. A creation in the latter part of Genesis 128, God says to Adam, rule over all the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. And we read in chapter nine, verse two, him saying to Noah, The fear and dread of you 
will fall upon the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and every creature that moves along the ground and the fish of the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Do you hear hints of similarity there? Do you hear kind of a continuation and even expansion there? God speaks of it very clearly in chapter 5 of verse 9 when he talks about the sacredness of human life. We call it the sanctity of human life, that human life is sacred. God says that in 9.5 when he says, and for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. Human life is sacred. We alone are made in his image. Noah, I want you to know that humankind is still the crown of my creation. A covenant shows Noah that God values him and his family. And third, it shows Noah that it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. That is one of the most important statements you can say to anyone. It's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. You're safe. You're safe. You're secure. You're okay. And that's what God is saying when he reveals the sign of the covenant. What you have just seen, Noah, will never happen again. I will establish my covenant with you and never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is a sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every creature with you, a covenant for generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I don't mind telling you, (laughs) I need those same promises every day. We need those same promises every day. We need covenantal love from God. Because in our lives, <laughs> it rains a lot. We face a lot of storms, uh, smaller than Noah's, but still sorrowful and so overwhelming and still frightening. But God's covenant says, no matter what happens, no matter what you see in the media, no matter what you experience, evil does not have the last word. You've probably heard someone say this kind of a phrase. If God doesn't place his judgment on humankind in our day and age, he'll need to apologize to and then fill in the blank. Probably the most common fill in the blank there is he'll need to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But I've heard as well, if God does not place his judgment on humankind in our day, he'll need to apologize to the people in the days of Noah. Let me say a couple things about that. First, While I get the point, God never has to apologize for anything, okay? He's God. Second, you and I do not have specific knowledge of the depth of the depravity that must have been present in the world in the days of Noah. We just don't know that, so you can't authoritatively make that kind of statement. But here's what we do know. We know that evil does not have the last word. Evil does not have the last word. And that's the point. Satan wins battles, but he doesn't win the war. And Satan brings damage, but never all out defeat. And Satan commands influence, but he never commands in the end. Nothing shows us this more clearly than the covenant of Jesus Christ. 
the new covenant in his blood. The darkness of Good Friday and the death of Jesus is not the last word. The empty tomb, that is what spoke the last word. The covenant of Jesus gives us kind of what God gave Noah, but it gives gives it to us in surround sound, (laughs) in technicolor, you know, broadband, whatever analogy you want to use, that's what we get. Evil never has the last word. And the covenant says that no matter what you've suffered, God values you and yours. You know, God did not have to spare Noah. When it says that Noah is a righteous man, that doesn't mean he was perfect. I was reading a book by Dr. Drew Johnson, and he spoke concerning this. I loved his first sentence. He says, given a description of his generation, we're less impressed with Noah's righteousness. <laughs> I mean, if you think of it in comparison, right? And then he goes on to say, however, the term for blameless here means something like whole or complete, the way he's meant to be. In the military, we used to convey the sentiment by saying, he's squared away, he's good to go. That's what Noah was. But he wasn't perfect. I mean, he proves his imperfection shortly after this, if you continue to read, with what he does with the fruit of his vineyard in chapter 9. And yet... God valued him. And God values you. Not because you're perfect, but because you're his. Because your heart is turned toward him. Because you hunger for him. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will... I love the King James here. It says, whoever cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. More contemporary translations say, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out drive away. You can trust him. God showed Noah his value by saving him. Jesus shows you and me our value in the new covenant by saving us because he says greater love has no one in this than to lay down his life for his friend. You have value, great value to God, and you can rest in that covenant. And as God placed his bow in the clouds for Noah, It remains there to this day, and it always will. It's going to be okay. I don't know what kind of bow that God uses. I was talking to Dave Clark about this this week, and I asked Dave, what is the Cadillac of bows, like the best bow a hunter could have? And Dave said, it's a Hoyt RX-5. Sounds like a Mazda to me. I'm not sure. I'm not a bow guy. I I, I don't know if God uses a Hoyt brand bow. I don't know what brand he uses. I really only know two things about God's bow. Number one, I know it's very colorful because I've seen it. And number two, I know it's not in his hands. He put it up. It's sitting up there. It's like granddad's gun that you never hunt with. It just sits up there above the mantelpiece. And because of that, it's going to be okay. The reason God says over and over again, do not fear, is because he wants to quiet your heart. He wants to still your soul. He wants to release and remove your anxiety. He wants to heal your fear, to heal your fear. 
He doesn't want anxiety ruling in your life. He wants you to have perfect peace. He loves you with perfect love. In the book of 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. It's going to be okay. <laughs> you worried about the economy? It's going to be okay. Are you worried about your health? It's going to be okay. Are you worried about your children? It's going to be okay. Are you worried about your parents? It's going to be okay. Are you worried about your future? It's going to be okay. Worried about dying? It's going to be okay. God gave Noah the sign of the rainbow to confirm his covenant of peace. He gave it to say, it's going to be okay. The Noahic covenant is really impressive. I really think it's the point of the story. I really do. <laughs> it's marked by a rainbow that wasn't just for Noah, but for all generations that followed, for you and me. And that covenant answered Noah's deepest needs. God's covenant answers our deepest needs. The covenant of Christ, the new covenant, it cares for all our needs when we turn to him and trust in him. I told you I'm going to read from Wayne Grudem twice in this message. Wayne Grudem wrote a book called Systematic Theology. It's about this thick. My daughter-in-law needed a copy of it, so I don't have my copy. I just have the digital copy. I'll tell you, the digital copy is a lot lighter. It's just as heavy reading, but it's a lot lighter. In that book, Grudem does this beautiful thing that so many theologians can't do. He doesn't just give you the scripture and the truth and the facts. He gives it to you in a way that you can feel it. See if you feel it as he talks about the new covenant we have in Christ Jesus. In this new covenant, there are far greater blessings. For Jesus, the Messiah, has come. He has lived, died, and risen among us, atoning once for all for our sins. He has revealed God most fully to us. He has poured out the Holy Spirit on all his people in a new covenant of power. He has written his laws on our hearts. This new covenant is the eternal covenant in Christ through which we shall forever have fellowship with God and he shall be our God and we shall be his people. When you see yourself desperately needing that kind of relationship, you are seeing your need for Christ. And when you finally say, I need that desperately, I need to turn away from the stuff that I thought would fill me, I know it's him who fills me, God, forgive me, I trust that Jesus has ratified the covenant by his death for my sins, I will follow you. When you do that, you enter into the covenantal relationship with God once for all. And there is nothing more wonderful than you could ever do. I want to pray that you've done that this morning and that you will walk with confidence in the covenant of God. Would you stand with me as we pray?
Let's bow our hearts together. Lord Jesus, we frequently, we frequently, when we look around at the world, feel a little bit like Noah might have felt. That evil is winning. That we're not really sure where you are in all this and we're kind of wondering if it's going to be all right. But just as you spoke to Noah in a loving covenantal way, you speak to us. And you tell us that evil never has the last word, that you value us in so much as you demonstrated your love for us in this while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And because of that, it's going to be all right. I pray for any here who have never entered the covenantal relationship with you, who have never said, that's what I want, that's what I need. I pray that in their hearts, they would turn from whatever whatever they've been hanging on to that just is not good, it's not glorifying to you, it's damaging to them and their relationships. I pray they would turn from their sin, recognizing that you, Jesus, paid the penalty for their sin, and that they would turn toward you and trust you <coughs> as the covenant maker, and they will follow after you. And in doing that, Father, I pray that you will communicate to them the beauty of the covenant, that you will communicate to them the joy of knowing you. That you will communicate to them that it's going to be okay. May all of us recognize that evil never has the last word. That you value us with an everlasting love. And because of that, it's going to be all right. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.